Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, Anna is someone that I'm a huge fan of, and it's an, a real honor to have her on the show. But first, before we get to that, if you want to get in touch with me, you can send an email to the Turn It a Punk email address at turnitapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That and the Instagram page and the Facebook page are all run by my brother and show producer, Tristan Abraham, and guest booker extraordinaire. And he will get the message to me. If you want to get in touch with me directly, you can find me at left for damien To support this show, the best way of doing that is just by telling telling everyone you know that you like this show. You can also support this show by going over to the Patreon at patreon.com slash turnoutapunk, or you can uh, subscribe to it and rate it and and, and uh, support it that way. And speaking of support, this show would not be possible without the loving support, well, of the Patreon, but also of the fine folks at Vans who have allowed me to do this without going into my pocket to pay for it, which has been great. So thank you very much for, to Vans for their continued support of this thing. And uh, and that's it. I'm putting out so many episodes now that I feel like I, I got to shorten these intros because I'm <laughs> saying this a lot each and every week now. So, yeah, I'm going to shorten it way down and that's it. I hope everyone's doing okay. Today on the show, one of my favorite songwriters, Anna Calvi. She has made some unbelievable records, some, some of my actual favorite records. She's someone that I think Brian Eno described her as like, the, the new Patti Smith or, or the best thing since Patti Smith, um, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, she is a incredible artist completely in her own right. And if you have not heard her stuff, you owe it yourself to check it out. So when I found out that she was into coming on this show, I was stoked, you know, and I went out and I checked out her old band, Cheap Hotel. And you really do hear how punk rock kind of shaped her sound and and you'll hear us talk about it on the show. So I'm not going to blather on anymore. I'm going to let you sit back, relax and enjoy Anna Calvi on Turned Out a Punk. Anna, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, as I was just kind of telling you off air, I'm a huge fan of your records and going all the way back. Uh, to the what limited stuff I've heard of, of your early bands, but I got to start this thing off the way they all start off, which is, Anna, how'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever heard about the genre? I think um, the first uh, punk record I, I got into was when I was about 18 and I was in university and I I heard Patti Smith uh, Horses, which for me definitely feels like a, a punk record and thousand percent yeah yeah it just um it just really blew my mind how free she was and how just the music and and her lyrics felt so kind of energetic and powerful and I just hadn't heard anything like it so that was like quite a a big moment for me as a as an artist to hear a record like that had you been like obviously growing up you've been in music what, what kind of stuff were you into prior to that um i guess i i listened to a lot of grunge when i was kind of uh, 14 15 i was into i guess nirvana and pearl jam and stuff like that and lemonheads that was uh kind of my teenage years but then when i when i went to university i guess i because i was studying music i i kind of 
<clears throat> opened up the palette of of music I was listening to, and it became a lot broader. Well, it's funny because like even all the bands you mentioned there, like the grunge bands, like you know Lemonheads, Nirvana, like all those bands came from punk rock too. Like it's like a you know almost like a, a sonic through line from Patti Smith being obviously the OG of OGs to to like the present day even. Yeah, I think to me, punk is about more of the, a state of mind and how how you kind of view yourself rather than perhaps the, the actual sound of the music. Mm-hmm. I would say for me, it's more of a philosophical position than anything else. Oh, 100%. And like, you know, someone that you're very much familiar with on a personal level, but Brian Eno is someone who, you know, like I think with the New York stuff that he's putting out, even going back to Roxy music, like you kind of see this sort of, uh, you know, pushing of artistic boundaries that eventually gets kind of branded as punk rock at a certain point and then ultimately gets codified and taken up as something completely different. But yeah, like it is, it's, it's, it's not a, a set sonic. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, so where were you getting into music kind of growing up? Uh, well, I just, um, I listened to all my, my dad's uh, record collection. He was like a, a proper hippie in the 60s and he had, you know, Captain Beefheart and Rolling Stones and The Doors and I just basically just took all his records and just listened to them all day long in my room as a kid. So did you grow up in, I guess, a fairly music household, musical household? Yeah, I mean... Definitely, my both my parents were kind of very much, you know, introducing me to kind of all, like a wide range of music from rock and classical and jazz. So I just, um, yeah, I, just, I, I, I was lucky in that I had quite a wide range of music played at home. Like growing up with them, um, did they, did either of them play music? Yeah, my dad played guitar in a band when he was younger. Oh, was um, the band called? Um, I don't actually know, but I think they did like Shadows covers. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he, he sort of, that's how I got into the guitar. He taught me some Shadows riffs, some kind of rock and roll, and I just loved it. That was when I was about eight. Oh, and, that's uh, amazing. Yeah, that's how I got into guitar. So I never played an acoustic guitar. It was always a, an electric so were you playing in bands like, you know, right from an early age? What was, well, I guess, what was your first kind of musical endeavor outside of playing with your dad? Yeah. Um, I think I was maybe 14 and I started a band in school and, um, I think we were playing like Oasis songs <laughs> from what I remember. <laughs> um, and I wasn't, I wasn't a singer then. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so I was, uh, yeah, I wasn't a singer, so I was more like the Noel Gallagher of the group, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> you got, actually, were you writing originals at that point? I was, yeah. Very um, kind of over-the-top, kind of poetic songs about transcending and being cosmic. And I definitely hadn't found my lyrical voice when I was a teenager. It sounds a little deeper than Oasis, though. <laughs> yeah no i was already on my way sure. you're already on your way yeah totally <laughs> um you know you mentioned beef art earlier and it's funny because like you know in your music now like that's something else uh, you know like obviously not an over-present sonic but you can you i can definitely hear how you know that would have been there for you yeah i guess it's this place between something that doesn't feel right and feels kind of 
maybe dissonance, this kind of dissonance that resolves into something beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, that That's what interests me most about music, I think, if I had to sum it up. It's that moment of feeling comfortable, feeling really uncomfortable and then there being a line that holds your hand and takes you to something that feels um, like there's a resolution. Yeah, and, and, and like once again, like, you know, like we were, you were talking about earlier, like it's almost like it's something bigger than punk rock that goes back to Beefheart, where it's like this, the idea of, of finding the beautiful in the profane. Yeah, and I guess the the sense of wanting to break away from from what is expected of you, and um, however, and, and just being really brave. I think that to me, that's what it's about: is being brave, even if everyone else is doing the opposite. To have the strength in you to kind of walk the the, the less well known path. I think is a, a punk rock kind of attitude. Totally. So I guess like, you know, bands like Oasis and sort of the more, you know, Lemonheads and, and Nirvana, like the more contemporary stuff you were getting to, where was that influence coming from? Was your parents, were you, sorry, were your parents into that as well or? No, I think that was just. <laughs> That'd be <laughs> really know, like, cool that if they was, were. Yeah, no. <laughs> I think that was just what was in Enemy at the time. Okay. I think, yeah. It's, it's, that's the thing about, I guess, growing up in, in the UK versus growing up in North America is just the access to cool culture that young people have is, it felt like it was a little more at hand. Like I, my dad moved to England when I was a kid and we'd go over and visit him and it was like, you could go to like the convenience store and buy a magazine that's actually going to talk about some pretty cool bands. Like they might even talk about like Leatherface or like some really obscure like punk band mm-hmm. or something in, in a mainstream magazine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I guess um, that was a cool thing about them back then. Although, when I think about it, you know, it was very, very male-centered. Um, so yes, you got like a a very small cross section of of music being made, but it completely felt like a like a boys' club. Oh, yeah, and I guess also like you know that time, some of those artists were being just openly misogynist in in music press and. And and homophobic in some cases. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's the one, you know, really good thing about if you look at the music scene now compared to then, is it feels like there's a lot more space for um, other voices to be heard, which is a great thing. Well, I guess going back to that time, did that band that you formed at 14, did it have a name? Um, I, I can't actually remember. It can't have been very... <laughs> a memorable name uh, yeah I'm not sure but uh, yeah I remember we did Oasis I think we did a few Beatles songs uh, but yeah it wasn't uh, my finest hour I don't think <laughs> musically well there's a lot of, you know you're 14 there's a lot of years to go from there but did you play any shows with that band I think we did like some school assemblies that was as far as that went um, and I guess shows. around you at that time were like a lot of your peers into this stuff like obviously you're forming a band but like are you kind of like already on your own musical path from the people around you I think um I was already I, I was a bit I guess different from people around me in a way in that my music tastes were I think a bit more obscure I got really obsessed with Indian music when I was 16 because uh I was in love with this 
my best friend who was Indian. So I just listened to like Ravi Shankar all the time and I detuned my guitar and to make it sound like a sitar. And so I was kind of going off on other, I, I, I got pretty bored of this sort of standard kind of Oasis song pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So I guess following that path, what did you do musically after that band? Like, did you start, you know, you're, you're detuning your guitar, you know, taking it in different sonic places, but were you kind of doing solo stuff at this point? Or are you forming another band? I um I formed another band um and I started writing songs to get the singer to sing I still wasn't a singer myself and that was around the time where I I discovered Jeff Buckley which was a massive thing for me I'd never heard a singer like that and he's the reason I I wanted to become a singer really um <laughs> his voice being so free and, and wild and this feeling of, of it being on the edge of, you know, is he going to make the note? And then somehow he, he did. And his guitar playing as well with this kind of beautiful reverb sound. This was a moment where I, I actually felt like I, I want to do this. I really want to try and do this. And I still was, you know, much too scared to kind of be a singer, but in terms of my songwriting and my guitar playing, I definitely started developing, I guess, the beginnings of what I ended up being able to do. Um, and then, yeah, the first band I was in as a singer was called Cheap Hotel, and we were more of a kind of punk band than, I guess, what I'm doing now. It was a three-piece. Um, and that's kind of where I learned a lot of how to kind of be on stage was from that band. And I guess, yeah, how did that band come together? Um, I met the bassist. She was, uh, well, I think we met at kind of like a jam session or something. Okay. And and then we um, we auditioned loads of drummers to find the find the right drummer, and we just played all over London. I think I was in the band for like five years, um, and we had quite wild shows, but it kind of never really went anywhere. And I think part of it was. Well, for me, I, it felt a bit like I didn't want to have to dilute what I wanted to do to try and suit two other people. I think it's really hard in a band to have three people who have exactly the same vision and, and want the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I d- honestly don't know how bands do it. <clears throat> but for me, it, it, it started becoming apparent that being solo felt like a much more you know, creative freedom and, and more exciting for me. Yeah. Like it's, it's, uh, I've, been, I've been in a band myself for God, too many years at this point. And it is, it is that kind of like the creative crush uh, or the sort of the crush on your creativity that is democracy. You're trying to like, yeah, it, it, it's just, it's not necessarily as conducive with art. But then when you get it right, it's like you've got three creative minds or four creative minds and, and what you can do with that can be incredible. But I think the chemistry has to be right, you know? Yeah, um, absolutely. And and I guess in that band it, it wasn't, but I mean, yeah. I mean, what you do with your band is incredible. So <laughs> it definitely does work. <laughs> I really, um, I very, very much appreciate that. But, <laughs> but I think, I think, you know, by the same token, I think also what you did in Cheap Hotel from the one song I've heard, granted, I've only heard New York, but uh, I love that bit song. Like, I love the sound. Like, it reminds me of, I, I hear, I hear Sleater Kinney, I hear television influences, I hear like all sorts of stuff coming into it. What were, you know, the sonic influences that you, you were bringing into that band? 
Uh, well, that wasn't actually my song. That was the the basis song. Yeah, you're, um, you're it's on the B side, high. And let me tell you, if I ever track down that copy, that's gonna be the first thing I check out is the B side. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think I think there wasn't that much thought behind it. It was just like let's make it loud. Mm-hmm. It was kind of as far as it went, really. <laughs> That's all you need <laughs> Which, sometimes. Yeah, yeah. But I have to say that that kind of attitude is partly why I wanted to leave because I, I wanted to do kind of other stuff. But it's funny when I, you know, I haven't heard that song in a long time. But when I did listen to it back, I kind of could appreciate it in a way that I, I couldn't at the time. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. No, I totally understand that. Like, well, you know, I think even, you know, with my band as well, like, you know, sometimes you need that distance to kind of mm. understand what you did and what you were a part of and, and things like that. Um, but like go- going back to that, what bands were you, were you playing with at that time? Like what was the scene like um, that Cheap Hotel was kind of fitting into? It was actually a really interesting time in London. There was a lot of bands. There was a band called The Invisible that were really – really interesting and experimental there was a singer called uh, Mikachu and the Shapes who's gone on um, to do really amazing soundtrack work she's called Mika Levi and she did the soundtrack to Jackie the film about Jackie Kennedy and um, really kind of unusual she used to sort of she made a kind of guitar that she used to play with a hoover and you know it was it was a really crazy scene of lots of really interesting bands and we used to do lots of band nights at different venues and it's really interesting now kind of 10 years later to see you know how far people in that scene have gone it's a it's a it's a great it's a great thing and it definitely felt like a an interesting time, you know, away from the spotlight when people were just trying to figure out what they wanted to do. And, um, we had some really great shows. Yeah. Like it's something that kind of comes up on the show is, is, you know, not to get too nostalgic, but like looking back at that time, it's, you almost wonder if it could happen now. Like if you could Mm -hmm. have, you know, without, without people seeing it right away and kind of it getting exposed right away, like you still have scenes popping up, but everything seems to get kind of like, you know, feasted upon immediately and not really developed in the mm. same sort of way anymore. And also in, in London, so many of the great venues I used to play in have closed. Yeah. Um, and I really think that makes a big difference because there was so many places to play when I, when I first started out, lots of tiny little places that had a really cool vibe, but you know, not everyone knew about them. And now they're just, there's just hardly any. And I definitely think that makes a difference to how people can, um, I guess, develop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it's the uh, <clears throat> this sort of uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Sorry about that. I've got a sick kid, so I'm getting sick. But oh. <laughs> um, it's that weird moment where you had you know, space in the city for things to develop. Like you had spaces for for bands to practice and spaces for bands to play and. It's like in this period of gentrification, like how's culture going to thrive and survive 10 years from now? Yeah, I don't know, because places get more and more expensive and yet the living wage doesn't rise to the same. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't really know um, what the answer to that is. I think a a lot of it is saved by the fact that people can make music in their bedroom now in a way that they couldn't 10 years ago, you know, 
and 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 post things online is kind of in a way the new way of uh, people meeting up and playing you know shit venues but it's kind of not the same because I think a lot of that's to do with cross-pollination of kind of meeting other people and and you know meeting other artists and and being in the room and and seeing it so it's good that we have that but it's definitely not an equivalent to being able to play live in front of people yeah no you're right 100 percent. but if it is like kind of moving towards that idea of like a decentralized scene like you'd have people all over the world that are able to kind of come together through a shared love of something that don't necessarily have to be in the shared space. And it's, it's almost like that's born out of necessity now. Yeah, definitely. And I think the good side of it is I think people generally have a much wider rate taste of music mm-hmm. than they probably used to. Yeah. And I, and I think that has meant that more avant-garde strange music gets heard by more people, which I think is a great thing. Yeah, there's this, you know, the the idea of like, you know, when growing up, you know, back in the 90s, the idea of like having every single, you know, 20 some odd dollar CD at your disposal at any given time, every import, everything, like you can just kind of pick and choose from, you don't have to pick a genre anymore out of necessity. Yeah. No, completely. And and it's kind of a, a dream, really. I mean, we, we're a bit spoiled by it, but. I mean, I remember spending hours and hours in like the music library at my university because it had, you know, lots of CDs from like all over the world, you know, different music. And it's funny to think now, you know, you'd have to go to a library to hear like some kind of, you know, South African music or something. It's... I remember renting CDs even like at a, at a video store. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you had to rent a CD <laughs> and then return it. <laughs> I remember that. Uh, but it's, it's like, as we've moved on from this, this place where information was, you know, you had to pay for it at a premium, it's, you're right. Like it's, it's opened the door to so much more exposure to different things to bring into your own art. Yeah, definitely. I think you, and you can hear that in people's music now. So once again, going back to that time when Cheap Hotel was, was you know, breaking up and you're kind of like exploring solo stuff. How long, I guess, how was cheap hotel situated in your university experience? Was it during while you're at university or after university or? It was after. Yeah. So, um, were you already doing solo stuff as well at the same time, kind of on, on, you know, your own as you're doing cheap hotel? No, I, um, no, I wasn't, I was sort of trying to make the band work, but then, as I was feeling kind of a bit creatively frustrated, I, I started writing some songs on my own and I and I did some recordings on my own. Um and I I suddenly felt this kind of excitement that I was I guess missing from, you know, the end stages of the band. And that's when I sort of thought, you know, I I really want to try and do this solo. And then at the same time, the band, I think we all, all of us kind of felt like it had come to a a logical end, as things do. Um, So it was kind of good timing, really. And so how different was that stuff you're doing kind of as the band's ending and like to the self-titled record? Um, I think one of the, one of the biggest, 
things about being in that band <coughs> and it wasn't really the band it was more like I guess the people around us like a, our manager and stuff is there was so much pressure to try and kind of write a radio song or like a hit song it's always like oh you're one song away from being signed you just need one song and this was so um bad for me as a as a writer to have this kind of pressure um so it really taught me about like what not to listen to because I you know I really kind of got fed a lot of shit that I had to sort of forget yeah. when I was doing my own music and and the funny thing is you know when I did forget it I was like fuck that you know I'm just gonna write music that I like and I don't care if no one else likes it I'm not gonna try and please anyone anymore mm-hmm. it was funny that that was the music you know my solo record that actually ended up creating a, a career for me and that was just a really interesting lesson for me is that you know you can't really write good music if you're trying to please people well it's such an amazing statement that first record like obviously all your records are incredible but that first record is just like like what a roar to kind of come out with like you know you mentioned unlearning was that like something that took a while to kind of get to that or sound or were you like this is the sound i'm i'm gonna do right away it was actually really easy it that's just the music that was in me Mm-hmm. no filters um and I guess the feeling of um the other thing I I learned from what I didn't want from doing um Chip Hotel was I guess like how to present it on stage to feel that you know you don't I didn't want to be like an entertainer I don't want to be like running around the stage being like is everyone having a good time <laughs> you know different kind of vibe I imagine with the music <laughs> yeah you know I, I felt like you know I, I there was something about an idea of like wanting to present something honest and truthful and that that's how to connect so even if that means standing completely still with your eyes closed and not moving at all for 50 minutes if that's how you can really get into the music that's how you should perform it because that's the only thing that matters and that was something that I I learned from doing my solo stuff that I had to unlearn I had lots of people telling me you've got to move around more on stage and watch back your performance and you know change the way you do this and change the way you do that it's like you're chasing something that you don't, you know, that you'll never find because you'll never satisfy everyone. You'll never please everyone. So, yeah, it was a lot of um, unlearning, unhelpful uh, could advice. You, uh, could you imagine what kind of monster would sit there and watch their performances back? Like, oh my <laughs> gosh, I couldn't imagine a more horrible, sadistic thing to do. Oh, uh, it's terrible. I, I had to do it. We had to, I had to sit with my manager and oh, my watch God. it back and make notes. Oh, make I mean, notes. everything, yeah, like everything about it was like as if I was in the girl band or something. It was all so wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I could, I could, well, it's, it, it stands to reason why you came out with such a strong statement for the first day afterwards, <laughs> you know, looking back, like, how do you approach every record? Cause like, you know, everything changes, but it's still in kind of your, your world. Like you're, it's, it's all you, right? Like, so how, like how much creative bounce back do you give other people and how much of it is just kind of like you're going into things, how much develop? I know it was a lot, but <laughs> take me through your processes, basically what I'm trying to get to. Um, 
it's it depends on the album, but I think in general it's very solitary. I I do I mean I do leave room for my musicians to add things. I don't write everyone's parts, but I I have a very clear visual idea of what I want in that I see music or I see my songs very much like mini films. Mm-hmm. And so all my creative decisions are to try and make that picture come into focus. So any sounds are to try and make that picture come into focus in my mind. And even though I know that no one else sees it the way I do, I feel like it's a really good way of arranging for me in that it come it makes me come up with more interesting ideas. It's not I don't really have conversations about like, oh, you know, uh I want this to to groove or something just because I want a song that grooves. It's more like this song is about someone crawling through a rainforest and there's mud all over their face. So what kind of beat would facilitate that feeling? That's more the kind of conversations I have with producers and, and my musicians. I guess it's also then a, a question of finding producers and musicians that they can kind of see that vision with you, right? Like they can kind of like realize that they're going to be in a backseat, but also take that kind of like visual cue of what you're going to try and get them to do. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 um, the best situation is to be with people who take your vision and then go with it in a slightly different direction that you would never have thought of. And you feel surprised. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what is really important to me is to, to always have a feeling of being surprised turning something that was going to be something and turning it slightly into something else. That's the exciting part. Well, another thing that comes back to punk rock is the label you're on Domino records, which uh, Lawrence has actually thanked on the blitz seven inch. Um, by name. (laughs) and, and the first record that Domino put out was a Leatherface LP. So how did the relationship with Domino (laughs) come about? Well, um, I don't think anyone particularly wanted to sign me. Really? <laughs> yeah, I was going around doing shows in, in London and I happened to do a show supporting a folk artist called Johnny Flynn. And Bill Ryder-Jones, who used to be in the Coral, happened to see me play this tiny show and told Lawrence about me. And he he looked up you know, a couple of my songs and we met and he, he said he wanted to sign me and... It's not like I had some kind of bidding war where all the labels were like, no, we want her, you know. And, but I, re- I really like that about him. It's like he didn't care that no one else was really bothered. Yeah. It was like he, he heard something that responded, that made him feel something and it made him want to do something about it. And I think that shows why they're such a good label mm-hmm. because they have people that are doing it for the right reasons. Yeah, no, he, um, I don't I just think like that, I have so much respect for that label and, and especially that, like the fact that he's that guy, like he passed on fucked up, you know, and we right. ended up signing with uh, beggars after that, but it was like, you know, he just has this ear where he just hears something in a band and an artist and just knows this is someone that I should invest in. And you go through that catalog. It's like almost like a flawless discography. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. He's, um, I, I remember having a conversation with him and he said something like, you know, I, who am I to judge what 
music is good. I don't know any more than anyone else does. And I, I thought that was a really good attitude, you know, yeah. and really kind of opposite from the, the kind of arrogance you imagine these kind of guys and labels have, like as if they know something that other people don't. And ultimately it's, it's so um, subjective. And, and if anyone has a right to be arrogant about music, it's someone who's thanked in the first Blitz 7-inch. it's very true (laughs) uh so uh, looking at the new record you know you mentioned the cinematics and that you go into every album with so with hunted what were the cinematics you approached this album with like what kind of visuals were you thinking about ahead of writing um do you mean the record i've literally just put out or the one i put out in 2018 because I, I put out my main record in 2018 that's called hunter no and h- then, hunted in 2020 right, i don't have a yeah. copy of it yet but yeah yeah so so i did um no we can we can go talk about the other record too but i just i kind of wanted to i didn't want to keep you all day and type thing and so I yeah no wanted... no it's just because the names are so similar <laughs> <laughs> i need to always check that people know which one they're talking about but well, yeah actually i guess going um, back to like you know um you know that's actually probably a better way to to approach this actually even like, <laughs> so going in, like being that the two names are so similar, what were the approaches with Hunter and how is that mirrored and different in, in Hunted? Because, you know, clearly there's some sort of play going on. Yeah. So, I mean, Hunter was my full length record that I really wanted it to feel galvanizing and strong. And it was kind of just about this idea of a, a woman exploring her pleasure and without any sort of shame and, just going into the world and, and taking what she wants. Um, so it's uh, it's pretty wild. It's quite ag- aggressive at times. Um, and I I was touring this record and I, I came back from tour and I happened to listen to some of the demos I'd done of the record. So I had recorded myself on my own. As soon as I'd written the songs, I just got them down and recorded them and I thought there was something quite interesting about these recordings because they were so much more vulnerable and raw. And um, I liked the symmetry of, of, you know, releasing something very vulnerable and raw after this very kind of loud, big record. And this idea of, I, 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 I don't like this idea of like the empowered woman, like powerful woman. I think it's just as reductive as seeing women as kind of fragile the point is that humans are multifaceted and um, I, I take objection to any kind of small pigeonhole. Mm-hmm. So I like the idea of, you know, this expression of, of a woman who is a hunter but also can feel hunted, a more vulnerable side of, of, of me. And that's what this new record is about. And so how does that change the approach that you go into the actual recording process? Like, did you try and make sure that it was like stripped down in the actual approach too? like, is it a lot more just, you know, once again, solitary this time around or. Well, because I really, I mean, the, the recordings are basically just my demos. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, I kind of just left them as they were. Um, they, they're kind of more rough around the edges. There's mistakes in them. I go out of tune and out of time, but there's something interesting about showing recordings that were so private that no one, no one was ever going to hear them. You know, not even my friends and family, the idea of putting those very private recordings out, I think is kind of interesting. 
Well, it goes back to what you're saying about being brave, right? Like no one yeah. wants you to see that bear. Yeah. Is this something that you want to take into the next album? Like, is it going to be a vulnerability approach or do you want to go back to, to, to the, the big album? I, I'm kind of interested in this uh, vulnerable thing. Um, or just the idea that, uh, I guess just distilling something to its completely only essential parts mm-hmm. is something that really interests me. So I guess that's what, you know, doing Hunted has been like a stepping stone to the, the songs that I'm writing now. Well, I'm stoked to hear them. <laughs> when you finish the new record, would you come back at some point for a part two? Yeah, I would love to. Well, Anna, yeah. this has been incredible. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Anna, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, we're going to do a part two. When that new album comes out, because uh, I'm a fan. I cannot wait for that record. I Oh, I love her stuff so much. That's why I do this show, because you get to talk to people that you're a fan of, you know? And, and right now, when you're cooped up inside, it's good to have a hobby. And this, this right here is my hobby. And up next on this hobby horse that we have here is uh, a part two of sorts. This guest was on previously with his whole band and uh, he didn't get a lot of time to talk in his last appearance. So I've been wanting to have him back on and sit down and do this with him because to me, this guy is, you know, one of my heroes, one of the coolest people I've gotten to meet in music. And I mean that not just because of all the cool stuff he's done. I mean, he's actually like a really cool, cool human being and an incredible person to to get to know. And so next week on the show, you're going to get to know him a little bit. Next week on the show, Dale Crover is coming back to the podcast. Now, Dale is someone that you probably know from his time in the Melvins, uh, well, his, his current band, the Melvins, the legendary band, the Melvins. You also may know him for his time that he spent playing in Nirvana and, uh, Altamont and and Dale Crover solo record. There's just so much stuff that this guy's done. And we talk about some of it next week on the show. This is one of the great ones. Anytime I get to talk to Dale is a good time. And this is one of the best times. So I'm stoked for you to hear this next week. That's it for me. Uh, Everyone stay inside, stay safe and um, sign your organ donor cards Make your own culture right now. Definitely do something creative and it'll help keep you sane. I promise you. And that's it. Uh, I'll see you next week on the or next episode on the show. Yeah, we're putting out so many. Next episode on the show. Thanks for listening. Bye. <laughs>